Jason Wood here, the VA Loan Guy, host of the Armed and Ready podcast. In today's episode, it is a compilation of some of our favorite guests from episodes past. Please come check it out. It's going to be great. I just, I just love kind of that, that oorah spirit you guys have and um, just always promoting that. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how the, the coffee company came to be and how, um, you know, it's a group of you guys. I think, you know, everyone is a veteran and has their own different contributions to, but how did that kind of like group form and how did you guys create this? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's really interesting how far, you know, they started it at the end of 2014. And, and so it's just now coming up on six years old uh, this November, actually. And um, it, it's really incredible. You know, something that started in, in Evan, Evan Hafer, he's the CEO and, and uh, founder, um, you know, something that literally started in his garage with a little, you know, one pound coffee roaster doing the packaging himself and, and everything to today about 400 employees and, you know, multiple retail locations and finding this stuff in Walmart and Bass Pro and, you know, whatever gas station you walk into, it's like, it's really incredible. And out of those 400 people still kind of staying true to that, that, that goal of uh, making a community for veterans. It's, you know, about 50% of the company is, is, is a military veteran. Um, and, and many more that are first responders and, um, or spouses of veterans or, uh, you know, it, it's just such a great community and, and a great, um, uh, a great family that's been built around this brand, you know? And, uh, but yeah, so it started, you know, like you said, at the end of 2014 with, Evan linking up with uh, Matt Best and Jared Taylor to bring them into it. And I think the first um, bag of coffee they sold wasn't even called Black Rifle Coffee. It was, it was like called Freedom Roast, I think. And uh, they sold that through Matt and Jared's Article 15 uh, website and it sold out immediately. And uh, I think that's when they said, okay, there's something here. And they went to work, um, you know, building a company. And, and I certainly don't want to speak for the guys that founded it. Um, I've, you know, I'm proud to have kind of been, have a front seat, I think, uh, to them building this. Um, you know, I was able to be in, you know, their first commercial and I've known the guys since, you know, uh, a little while before the company started and, and just kind of saw this entire evolution. And I, I, I think I've just always kind of been their go-to word nerd along the way of like every time <laughs> they needed a blog post or something like that is, is pretty cool or, or to hop in, uh, something. So, um, I didn't become a full-time employee until about three years ago. So it's been um, it's been pretty interesting to see the evolution along the way, and it's it's just it's honestly it's been kind of a masterclass in business and marketing and, and yeah. how to scale a company. Like you know, everybody sees Evan and Matt and Jared and Logan. You know, the different personalities involved. They they see them for the funny videos and and the public personas that are there, and they are those people. You know, don't get me wrong. But then there's this whole other side that you don't see during, you know, marketing meetings or product development meetings or talking, you know, talking to coffee producers in Central America. And it's it's just fascinating seeing these guys who they were just knuckle draggers like the rest of us, but have now created this behemoth of a company that's not just selling a product, but also, you know, selling this idea that that that, you know, blatantly tries to inform, entertain, educate. They're they're trying to you know, not just sell coffee, but educate people about coffee. It's a lot of what I do is like, Hey, you know, like introduce people, like what's a Q grader? What's how do you do a pour over? Why does water temperature matter? You know, measure your coffee, things like that. The different brew methods, like the guys are actually legitimately passionate about coffee. And 
and all the other stuff that you see. And it's, it's just been amazing to see the growth. And, and certainly, and I, I think Evan and, and Matt and the guys that have, you know, been working on this since day one, they'd be the first to tell you that it hasn't been all, you know, unicorns and rainbows the entire way. They, they certainly overcome some significant challenges. And I, I'm sure Evan could tell you that there's been a day or two along the way where, Hey, well, you know, I don't know whether, you know, black rifle coffee survives or not. Um, but it's, I think when you look at it in retrospect now, you're like, well, of course it would. It's such a great idea. And look at the people running it. And like, oh, of course it's doing. It. Sure. But, yeah. You know, when you don't have that retrospect, when you're the person that's you're living in the trenches, that, I don't yeah. think you necessarily see that. And I just can't, you know, I can't, uh, you know, praise those guys enough for like, man, just having the balls to do it, you know, just having, there's so many different times that they could have said, Hey, we've grown it. You know, three years ago, they could have said, Hey, We've grown this insanely fast. Let's pump the brakes. Let's enjoy some of the profits. You know, let's live the easy life a little bit. But instead, they're like, no, let's hire veterans. Let's expand. Let's grow. Let's create a place for people to come to and have a career. Let, let, you know, like they, they've had this yeah. bigger vision the entire way. You know, good enough was never good enough at any point along the way here. And it's just, man, I, how many people do you run into that have that kind of vision? It's pretty rare, you know. From being in the military to wanting to own like your own coffee business and, and how did it come to be like starting a coffee company? It sounds like very, very challenging, right? Like finding beans and roasting and like, there's just a lot to it. So mm -hmm. tell me how you made that transition. Uh, I think the nice thing about being in the military, we're used to dealing with really kind of complex situations and you have to find a way to solve them. So you get tasked with a lot of stuff, like your first new job, uh, whatever your MOS was like, Hey, you probably have no idea how to do it. You hit the ground running, you take, you know, a couple of weeks, couple of months, and you you learn very quickly on the job and how to adapt. Right. Uh, so I think that skill set was very important for to have here because I had no background in coffee, no background in brewing, no background in roasting, and just kind of figure things out as you go. And but at the same time, it was nice because I didn't know what the status quo was, so I can adapt, innovate, adjust um, to how we thought it should be. So uh, again, going back to the the skill sets in the military, I think, definitely helped out because of the adaptability that we get from it. But, you know, you take any new problem uh, you get and you find ways to, to make it happen. But why I wanted to start kind of being an entrepreneur was, you know, I, there are certain bosses I had in the military that I just didn't really like. And, you know, I think you learn more from bad leadership than you do sometimes from good. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to a job fair here in San Diego and I just had a panic attack. You know, try to dress up. I was wearing like a blazer and like khakis and everyone's like suit and tie, like Wall Street type. I was like, I can't do this. It's not for me. Kind of got claustrophobic and, and had to like get out of there. So that was kind of like the turning point for me, knowing that I wanted to do entrepreneurship and not work for anybody else. That's cool. And um, <clears throat> so how did, how did you get started um, specifically with, with coffee? Um, so I was, uh, at the time, I was a big coffee guy, um, drink a lot. I was actually cold brewing at my house a lot during that summer. Okay. Uh, and so I was like, oh, why isn't anybody doing this? Um, we really started with almost more of the health and wellness kick to it as well because, you know, cold brew, you get more of the flavor, more of the caffeine, but less of the acidity. Uh, so there's a lot more health benefits from that standpoint. But, yeah, it's just started there. I looked at the market and, like, why isn't nobody doing more cold brew? Like, I was a big cold coffee guy. I wasn't a huge hot coffee guy, so it made like perfect sense. Uh, and then I just kind of found that little bit of a niche and started kind of peeling onion back and seeing what was what was out there currently available. And at that point, there wasn't much uh, cold brew um, being done. So I kind of found that nice little spot to kind of innovate and expand into. Nice. So how long has Trident Coffee been around? Um, we kind of started in like summer of uh, 2015, right before my last deployment uh, or 
fall of uh, 15 and then I was gone until about um, May of 16 and then now started my transition out of the military. Um, so we started kind of getting everything up and running, uh, found this place so in like January of 17 is when we got first officially kind of launched opening up here and built this spot out and then doing a lot more distribution, canning uh, of our, our cold brew. Nice. And so. Um, so how's business? I know you're doing some some renovating and some expanding mm -hmm. and stuff. So sounds to me like business is doing pretty well. Um, how how's business been for you? Um, kind of the trajectory and um, is there anything any cool projects or anything that you're working on? You know, with the company. Yeah, so it's one of those things like cold brew is still kind of relatively unknown. It's still kind of this kind of nuance inside the coffee space, but the projections and the growth rate are phenomenal. I mean, it's outpacing all the kind of traditional hot coffee drinks. So Starbucks is doing a drastic shift because they're seeing the potential with it. So uh, as cold brew kind of continues to become more of a household name, I think more people become familiar with it. But a lot of people still think when they think of coffee, they think of hot. So we're trying to create like almost a paradigm shift in terms of how people think about coffee. Uh, and so we kind of see ourselves almost like as a craft brewery was 15, 20 years ago when all people really knew about was like Bud Light or Budweiser or Coors. Right. Then these kind of awesome innovators came into the space and showed like, no, like this is a craft beverage. Let's treat it like that. And we see that as the same way as we want to treat coffee as a craft beverage. So we're sourcing coffee from all over the world. We're expertly roasting it in our great small batch roaster to get the best flavors and nuances out of it. And we're serving it to you in a unique style and way to kind of show you that, hey, there's more to it than just adding a bunch of milk cream and sugar to it and have, like, getting you on your day. Right. So for us expanding, we've got some really great uh, like roots down here in Southern California. We're about 125 stores. Um, and now we're looking to hopefully expand into about 500 in the Southwest region by summertime. And so with that, we're bringing on a new distributor for kegs uh, and a couple new distributors potentially for our cans as well in some different regions outside of San Diego. In your military career, and you know, how did you even join the military? What was the motivation behind that? Okay, for sure, for sure. Um, well, it all started off, uh, my mom was a flight attendant and she had a real passion for aviation. And she always was talking that I should be a pilot. And then Top Gun came out and, and I thought, man, that is the coolest thing ever. I got an ROTC scholarship, went to Duke University, and then uh, I got selected into the pilot program, got commissioned as an officer. And I actually went through 20 year career as a Navy jet pilot. It just flew by. I can't believe how fast time flies. And I just had a great career. <clears throat> and then uh, before you know it, uh, 20 years is over and uh, I'm out of the military and on to my next thing, which is being an actor. Oh, wow. Yes. That's yes. pretty cool. Yes. Um, well, that's, you know, the Top Gun movie and aviation is something we both have in common. So that was my entire motivation for joining the military as well. Um, just watching that movie and, and wanted to be an aviator. I didn't end up making it to pilot school, but was in the Air Force and, and did that for about six years and got my private license. So I flew airplanes, but didn't get to fly the F-14 Tomcat, which was, you know, what all my book reports were on as a kid and, you know, all that stuff. I was just uh, totally a guru for that. And, and still to this day, I love just like seeing the Instagram photos, you know, of the F-14. It's just such a beautiful airplane. Is that what you flew? Yeah, I, I flew the S-3 Viking. Okay. North Island in San Diego. And actually, uh, my college entrance essay was, what is the book or movie that most influenced you? And I did my paper, my essay on Top Gun. 
And then the interesting thing also is you'll probably be seeing me in Top Gun Maverick. Uh, it just got postponed till December 24th. Okay. And I'm looking forward to seeing that coming up. Yeah, that's really cool. So what's, what's your role in that? Well, uh, they cast a lot of real naval aviators uh, as pilots. And so we're going to be in the bar scene. And uh, I'm not supposed to talk about it too much, but you can see it on the trailer. So I'm not giving any secrets away. There's a, a really rocking uh, bar scene where all okay. the pilots are in their flight suits. And uh, I, I feel like I'll be in three scenes, but uh, no promises. And you, and you never know about the cutting room floor. Right, right. Did you get to fly at all for the movie? Oh, no. no. <laughs> also, uh, I was already out of the Navy by then, but yeah. I uh, got invited to come and be a part of it. So I, it, was, it was like a big reunion for all the pilots to get to be on set. I was there for 14 days. And it was oh, wow. a blast. I know you served in the Army, so tell us a little bit about your service. Like, what compelled you to join the military? And uh, tell us about your job a little bit in the, in the military. All right. Uh, so I enlisted on 9-11, uh, for obvious reasons, I think. Uh, at the time, I, wa I wanted to go work for the FBI. So I was, I was, I was in grad school to be a, a, a profiler and uh, work in forensics. But... Um, you know, 9-11 changed the course of that. I was at the recruiter's office on September 11th, knocking on a door, trying to figure out um, how to get a Navy SEAL contract, a Marine Recon, tra Marine Recon tra contract, or a Green Beret contract. Um, and ultimately, I chose the 18 X-ray program and um, to become a Green Beret, which I then became, uh, Special Forces Army Special Forces, and then, uh, you know, went to Ranger School and Sniper School, and then went to a Special Missions Unit, um, and kind of specializing in counterterrorism and hostage rescue, and I did that for the seven years on active duty, or eight years on active duty, and then for the past eight years, I have been in the National Guard, uh, still working Special Forces and Special Operations, and um, yeah, so that's my career in a nutshell, Afghanistan, Iraq, South America, uh, Africa, a um, few things in Europe, but yeah, it's generally it right there. Nice. Yeah, I didn't know um, the Guard had the uh, Special Forces unit. That's kind of cool. It is, sometimes. And then it's like less than cool. <laughs> I'm looking to try and figure out what is the right screw for the loophole delta point. It is the screw set 511. Okay. All right. Sorry. Nice, so, no problem. Um, so you're... You're fighting now, right? Are you? Are you? You've been in, in mixed martial arts. Uh, how long have you been doing that? I fought professionally for 18 years. Um, I came into the military at, already as a professional, like a, I, I think I was like ranked seven in the world when I enlisted, and um, so during my time on active duty, I was still fighting, and that was working out pretty well until a sergeant major from special forces was like, "Wait a second. That's, that's one of my dudes. And, um, and then he put a kibosh on that. The National Guard, they are organized that you have a second career, that your full-time job is not being a soldier. You have to have the same, you know, qualifications, requirements as a soldier. But um, so the National Guard called me and they said, hey, would you be interested in, uh, you know, being a fighter over here? And I said, hells yeah, I will. And that was the beginning of that. So I've been in uh, – on in the National Guard, I'm still fighting. Um, I, haven't, I, I retired officially last year as an active UFC fighter, 
and uh, just running my companies now. Okay. Okay. What what martial arts did, did, are you practiced at, or um, were, were your main things that got you into doing it professionally? Whew. Um, a whole bunch of them. Uh, I think now primarily I practice jujitsu, but um, I was one of the first army. I was the first army combatives black belt. Um, and uh, did judo, kickboxing, Hawaiian kempo, Japanese jujitsu. So a myriad, like UFC is, is called mixed martial arts. And uh, I, I, I was a really, really early version of that. So I, I wrestled in high school um, and, uh, you know, grappled. And that carried on into my professional career where I could pick where a fight was going to be, whether we we're going to be on our feet or we we're going to be on the ground. And that, that, that was... Uh, Worked out pretty well for me. Nice. So did you start like martial arts and stuff as a kid or did that happen kind of later in life? Oh, no, I, I, my, my, I was a, a second boy, I'm a middle child and okay. completely an idiot. So my dad, I think, put me into martial arts to try to keep me out of jail. And um, so that kind of worked. I mean, somewhat. And um, that, uh, it was my dad's fault. Yeah, you know, I think my first martial art was was uh, tai, um, Taekwondo, and then I started Shotokan Karate, and then and then I kind of got into. Then next was Japanese Jiu Jitsu, and I fell in love with the the gentle art of grappling, and um, and it was all downhill from there. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so that obviously has kind of sparked what you're doing now. So. What are you doing now for business? You said you got a couple of companies. Yeah. Uh, so I have a MMA apparel company called Ranger Up. Um, I've been working with them for eight years. Um, I have a shoe company called Woobies, and um, they, they make design by a Green Beret, um, like foot apparel. They're pretty cool. They look like skateboard shoes, but they're for operators. Um, and then I spend the vast majority of my time on Sheepdog Response which is a defensive tactics company that um, you know, our, our motto is to preserve and protect human life. So, you know, we teach hand to hand uh, self-defense um, weapon retention, weapon takeaways, law enforcement, military, civilian. Um, and uh, you know, like our ideals are to hopefully a, a contagious one where people remember that we're actually a badass society. That's not scared of anything, whether it be Nazis or, Japanese in Pearl Harbor or radical Islam or a uh, virus. We try to empower the individual to, to be strong. This is, this is their first taste of it. And it was, I was so proud. I was so proud of my nation that this is the sort of thing we did. I was so proud to just be part of it. You know, we all like to think that what we do makes a difference, but there was one, one time when you really seen it, seen it like what you're doing is actually making the world a better place directly yeah and it was it was i was so proud to be part of it that's really cool and i think it's it's interesting how you you mentioned you know the toppling of that statue was something they wanted yes you, you guys helped them right i mean you had the, we, the physical means to help pull it down <laughs> right but we, we had just set in in a defense and then the statues happened to be in the middle of the it they call it Ferdo square but it's actually a circle and the statues in the middle of the circle and we just set a defense around it, oriented outboard. We're just waiting for our next our next op order. 
And they started because we were there and because we had surrounded, it took on a symbolism to them. Yeah. And because we'd surrounded, because they couldn't, you couldn't disrespect Saddam Hussein, not even an image of him. And now because we were there, they started disrespect. They started throwing their shoes at it, which in their culture is a very disrespectful thing to do. Then they started beating on the pedestal with a sledgehammer. With you know, The pedestal's as wide as this room. They're never going to beat that. <laughs> They're going to do that. much with a hammer, yeah. So then they, we, a kid walked up to one of our vehicles and said, Mr. Mister, can you help us tear down the statue? And then that was when we went over and helped them out. That's cool. Yeah, I think, I think that part of the story, it, it, especially in the media, has been missing. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and I like I like hearing that part of it because I don't know, I, I feel defensive about our military and, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening in current current news day that it kind of gets skewed a little bit as absolutely to the, the why behind some of this stuff that happens. And, and you got to live it and we're right there on the street with very it. blessed, very blessed. Yeah, so that's that's really cool. Well, um, yeah, I commend you for that. That's that's just such a, a cool experience to have happened. We're very and, blessed. Yeah, very lucky to have been there. And a lot of, we had like, uh, you know, because you're part of obviously bigger entities, I'm part of a, a, at that time, part of a tank company, part of a battalion sized task force, part of a regiment. So the guys who weren't on those couple blocks that got to be part of that, they, they always kind of gave us a hard time. Like, man, we were like two blocks away and we missed it. Right. <laughs> you know, it was just, well, I'm just very blessed that that was where I happened to end up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't control it. So, um, so. Okay, back to your, your wrapping up school. You got done at San Diego mm. State. Um, and history, did you go into teaching then? After? I did. I went in. I taught history for a little while. I taught history here in the state of California. Um, I, I, always, I heard this from a lawyer, and, and I kind of stole it. So this, is my, this isn't my original expression, but I think nothing sums it up better than this. Is in California history... Two plus two is anything greater than three and less than five. It's very <laughs> ambiguous, and I really didn't like that very much. So I, I applied for a position in uh, Teach for America, and I wanted to teach math. I wanted to teach algebra, and, and luckily they accepted me, and luckily I passed the, the exams because uh, I end up teaching in the state of Arkansas in the Mississippi River Delta, a very poor, oh. poor school district, and you just had to pass certain, certain exams. And I didn't, I, I loved math, but I wasn't a math uh, major or minor or nothing right. in college. So I had to pass these exams. So I went to the, the veterans house on San Diego State University. And I said, is there anybody can, uh, you got a math tutor in here? Anybody can tutor me in math. Fellow walks out, I introduce myself. I said, I'm Nick Popovich. He says, I know who you are, Gunny. And I thought, okay, you know, because I've done a couple of things local, maybe I pass and cross. And I said, where, where, do, I, where, do, you, where do we know each other from? And uh, he said, I'm a Fox Company recruit. He was one of the recruits from when I was a drill instructor. No way. Oh, <laughs> and I said, cool. oh, I said, this is going to be a dream come true for you. You're going to be able to yell at me. You can go nuts just as long as I pass <laughs> that test. And he got me through the test. He was a great, uh, great instructor. I want you guys to maybe highlight what the GI Film Festival really is. I know it's a lot about you know, military footage and, and, and filmmakers and things of that nature. But tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the GI Film Festival San Diego originated... Um, in Washington, D.C., and it was essentially at the point that it was in Washington, D.C., it was the only military film festival dedicated specifically to military stories in the entire country. Um, here in San Diego, KPBS was really inspired by that and brought a lot of those films here to screen in San Diego. Of course, we have, as I mentioned already, a big military history, a big military community, and it's really important 
to be able to preserve and show the stories of the people in the military here in our city and around the world and around the U.S. So it's really there to celebrate, honor, uh, recognize uh, military stories, military history of all different back from people of all different backgrounds, all different um, ethnicities, all different, uh, you know, conflicts, for example, or, you know, branches of the military, and to make sure those stories are preserved and that they're celebrated and that they're honored, you know, right here in our city. That's really cool. I bet, I bet you guys have some cool stories that would make great movies um, from your time in the Coast Guard. Um, any, any cool stories you can share with us or funny stories? Oh, there's, there's plenty of funny stories. I mean, it's, you know, it's called sea stories. Um, uh, Holly, do you have one you want to start yeah, with? Yeah, I mean, I got a whole vault of uh, 24 years of sea stories. Some of them are appropriate for this, uh, for what we're doing today, and some of them are not so appropriate. So I think I'll, tr- I'll, put, I'll put out some of the uh, more appropriate Easy ones, there. but... I would say that uh, probably one of my, um, I wouldn't say it's a favorite story, I would say it's a memorable story, is uh, Hurricane Katrina. So I was at a, I was second in command of an anti-terrorism unit down in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina came through. And what I'll tell you is that my unit, uh, we had 78 men and women, and we all evacuated to Meridian, Mississippi. But as soon as the eye of the hurricane came through New Orleans, uh, my men and women were on uh, vans heading back into New Orleans, pulling our boats, and um, we evacuated everything out of our unit. We took weapons, boats, computers, um, ammunition. We took everything that we needed to because we didn't think we were coming back to our unit. And so we evacuated Meridian, Mississippi, and then uh, as soon as the eye of the hurricane went through, we went back in and... um, about uh, 65 of my men and women were in New Orleans, literally. I mean, the stories they tell of what the Coast Guard did in New Orleans are, is just simply amazing. And um, they were in a convoy on the streets of New Orleans, and they saw that there were looters that were coming down the street that were armed, and there was um, policemen that had our um, some other looters face down and they were getting ready to handcuff them, but here come these other looters. And so they stopped the caravan. Coast Guard got out, drew, drew their weapons, talked these uh, other looters down on the ground, handcuffed them and handed them over to the police. I mean, wow. <laughs> never in Coast Guard history do you have, you know, a detainees right there on the, on the streets. I mean, that's not really our job to be on the streets where our job is to be on the water. So, I mean, they just tell uh, incredible stories of taking axes and cutting people out of roofs and out of the attics, and it was, uh, it was definitely a challenging time. There was one story where um, one of my BOSA mates uh, was, um, they were in this big parking lot in, in New Orleans, and they were getting ready to rescue some people, and um, they, were having, they were being fired upon. They were having gunshots at them, and so he called me. He's like, XO, what are we supposed to be doing? And... So it was it was tough. I you know you tell them to take cover and that they got to protect themselves first. Yeah, that's intense. It was it was a crazy fourteen days of uh, you know I, I was in Meridian, Mississippi myself because um, since I was the XO I didn't go into the city to do the rescues, but my job was to supply everything that they needed. So every night at ten o'clock at night, my ops boss would call me and say, XO, we need. Baby wipes, talcum powder, white tube socks, water, bottled water. And then I would send the senior chief into the city the next day. He would wipe the shelves clean of 
whatever the ops boss said he needed, and then they would ferry it down into New Orleans and, and get that for the crews. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, other, other car cultures, BMWs and different car cultures too, it's kind of the same thing. Like they fight for that stick shift, that manual. Yeah. And like, oh yeah, no problem. It's another 20 grand, but you can have it. <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, it was just amazing just to, uh, for the opportunity to come here. And when I was in here, I was just like, wow, this is, this is sweet. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> you can't see, or if you're listening, you can't see what we can see, but I mean, this, this uh, storage facility is really top of the line. I mean, there's all sorts of supercars in here. There's a Spiker we saw. There's Ferraris, McLarens, um, Bentleys, Lamborghinis. There is all sorts of it's AC Cobra right there. AC Cobra. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is some cool stuff. What have, have you done any modifications to your car? Uh, yeah, I did a little bit. So, um, I, uh, so I had the top end rebuilt on the car, um, just because one of the cylinders had a bad leak down. So all the internals are stock, but everything on the outside of that is, is modified. So, uh, what does that mean? Headers, turbo, intercooler, um, exhaust, fuel management, uh, you know, so everything on the outside. And so now, uh, it was originally a 282 horsepower car. And it's probably closer to 400. Awesome. Yeah. I bet it handles great too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. I mean, I just literally, when I was coming on to, to Miramar here, it was, uh, the light was yellow. <laughs> <laughs> so I went around there, a little, you know, a little aggressive, and that thing just stuck, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's great. Yeah. That's cool. Now, my car um, is a 95 Toyota Supra twin turbo, six speed. Um, it's an inline switch, inline six. Um, and it's it's been pretty heavily modified. I mean, almost everything is modified on it. Was that like two million horsepower? Uh, no, actually, it's seven twenty seven to the wheels. We just had nice. it tuned. Yeah, wow, six hundred fifty six foot pounds of torque. But I'm running a single turbo, precision sixty four millimeter turbo, um, flex fuel, so it's running on E eighty five, but it can run pump gas or whatever. Oh, nice. um, and then the head's been built, so oversized valves and camshaft springs, retainers, all that stuff, um, ported, so it can rev pretty high, but aftermarket downpipe turbo exhaust intercooler yeah yeah you got everything in there <laughs> yeah it's 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 all pretty much been done so there's there's only a couple of little things left that could be done to it but um yeah wow. it's yeah. it's becoming a beast oh it is a beast so i'll never forget the first time i saw one of these i was um in new jersey i was stationed in morristown new jersey it was a shore duty station and um, I worked part-time at a gas station because I had a lot of time on my hands, right? So, yeah. And they just, I guess, came out. I've, I don't know their, their year range. 90, well, this body style, the Mark IV, they call it, was came out in like late 93, which was a 94 model. Okay, yeah. So this thing came in with the wing and the big lights and all this stuff. And it was like two guys, maybe three guys in there just giddy laughing about it, right? Because it was such an exciting event for them to get, get this car and. You know, they got the first fill up at the gas station kind of thing and yeah. all that. And I was just like, wow, that thing is nowhere near what it used to look like, you right. know, and that, that's literally my favorite model. Just, just uh, the way it looks, you know? Yeah. It's kind of a timeless shape. Um, there's, there's a lot of hubbub about the, the new version um, yeah. that recently came out and, uh, the, the, the Mark four purists, you know, that have this body style, the majority of them aren't real big fans of the new one. 
Um, yeah, not either. <laughs> but um, it's not my favorite. <laughs> but you got to make progress, right? You yeah. got to break it to fix it, I guess, right? And, right. And, you know, there's a lot of stress on these uh, manufacturers to do different things. But uh, definitely, like a lot of cars, like I have a, also a 1988 BMW M3. So it's the first M3 uh, that they made for the road there. And it was it's it was always the measuring stick because it they it had a culmination of uh things that they put together for it that it made it very magical so the suspension is amazing uh it's not overpowered for the chassis so it's a great driver's car um and uh they try to reproduce that magic over and over and they they, they never have just because you just kind of can't everything came right. together just right on that particular car yeah. and then that one was a race car that they made for the street Versus normally it's a streetcar made to race, right? So that was a unique thing for that one. Speaking of California, now I know you had you had a find here, like in the San Diego area, um, the Ote Reservoir. Is that right? Um, did you o- find Ote, something there? O- Ote or Otai, Otai Otai Reservoir. There was a fisherman, a freshwater fisherman. I asked him why he doesn't go in saltwater. He told me that freshwater, he likes more of a challenge. Uh, his name is Dwayne Johnson. I think he has Western flooring. Should still be there. He wasn't that old, and so he was he was bass fishing. Um, and I'm not the best to tell his story, I can tell the high level. So he and his friend were bass fishing with his boat, and they were cutting across the reservoir. And on his uh, I think it's a hummingbird he had, hummingbird fish locator, he saw the airplane. And he uh, so he contacted somebody in the local, there's plenty of navy there, San Diego. And it took a little bit, bounced around a little bit, and it finally got to the National Naval Aviation Museum. It actually reached us at A&T Recovery first, and then we actually told the National Naval Aviation Museum. So then they talked to everybody, and they asked us, did you know about that aircraft? We said, we knew it was there, but it's California. People are nuts, right? So (laughs) anyway, so they, they said, could you guys go pick it up? And we said, sure, we'll go pick it up. What kind of aircraft did you find? Oh, well, we didn't find it. Uh, Dwayne Johnson did. It was a hell diver. We recovered it. Gotcha. And then you know, one of your staff, your production staff, spent the week there with me filming. Yeah, yeah. Paco, Paco was telling me about that. That's, that's a really yep. cool connection. Um, what are some other you know, cool areas where you've had to go do some, some recovery or some exploration? We closed some FBI cases and some FAA cases. The... Uh, well, they actually, uh, the FBI extradited me once over one of those cases. Really? That was kind of funny. Yep. We found uh, an aircraft lost in 1966. And, and that aircraft was coming from somewhere in Texas with three men in it, heading to Detroit, Michigan for some sort of meeting. If you draw a line from just about anywhere in Texas to Detroit, Michigan, you don't get near Lake Michigan. But in 1966, this airplane disappeared. And we found it 20 miles out in Lake Michigan. So we, uh, we called the NTSB and the FAA and said, hey, we found this aircraft. They gave us the, the report on it that it was missing. And they, and we asked them, well, do you want it? Or do you want to know anything about it? And they said, no, we don't care. It was 1966, right? The Michigan State Police have a diving team. And it was a funsy-onesy thing. They wanted to go dive on it. So they spent all this time 
in money trying to figure out how to get the position for the aircraft from it. And finally, one of them got smart. One of the lawyers got smart and says, have the NTSB ask them where the aircraft is, the position of the aircraft. Well, every legal counsel that we talked to told us we would win this case because we had asked them if they wanted it and they said no. But they were doing it for the Michigan State Police dive team who wanted to go play on it. And so the Michigan State Police dive team said that Michigan has a law that all drowning victim bodies have to be recovered if possible. So that was their supposed justification, right? That right. there would be three people in it. So, so we told the NTS, so the NTSB said, what's the location? And they did it in a, they didn't do it in a formal way. They just called us up and said, what's the location? And this was three weeks after we had asked them if they want the location. So my partner took the call and he said, get off my phone. <laughs> Next thing I know, my lawyer calls me and says, the FBI is coming to, to, to pick you up because they've signed the extradition papers. They're going to extradite you to Michigan. I said, why Michigan? Why can't they just lock me up here where I was? And I'll... <laughs> so, anyway, they looked like a pack of buffoons. I did, uh, for, for writing my book, I uh, did a... Uh, FOIA on it. And even the FOIA people from the FBI and the Michigan State Police said, boy, do we all look like a pack of buffoons. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so then, but that wasn't the most famous one. We, uh, there was a guy named D. Bland Stewart that went missing in Alabama. And people claimed that he faked his plane crash. Well, we know plane crashes. And so we looked at the, the NTSB report on it and we realized he didn't fake his plane crash. He had crashed in the lake where, where it was suspected he crashed. About two years after he crashed, um, his wife, he, he was an insurance broker, and, and he, was, he held true to form. He bought lots of insurance. He had lots of life insurance. And his wife wanted that life insurance. She knew he was dead. So they, uh, they had seven other companies try to find him. I don't know what they were doing. They couldn't find him. So his his wife and uh, his wife contracted with us to find him. It took us like two days, and we found him. And uh, and so it was on America's Most Wanted. So remember that program, America's Most yeah, Wanted. Yeah, I watched it all the so time. We're one of the people who found a, a fugitive. Oh, they had an international manhunt. I think the FBI people knew full well that he was that he was in that lake somewhere. But I think they were having fun running off to the Bahamas and running. Off. <laughs> <laughs> right. supposedly looking for the guy. So yeah, we, we, they never said our names on uh, America's most wanted the program. They just, they just showed video of me horsing around and recovering. Any deployments you can, you can share with us that um, particularly memorable. One that was memorable to this day. I still uh, have trouble breathing out of my left nostril because the, uh, I had surgery on it twice because I had it broken. I had it broken uh, in the Horn of Africa. We were doing anti-piracy um, things in Africa, and so I boarded a ship. And so we're looking for contraband, all sorts of uh, things, including, you know, individuals. So, And I opened up a compartment that was so tiny, you never thought that there was a body in there. I open it up, and a guy comes out, catches me flush right in the nose. Ooh. Boom. I didn't even realize that it was broken, even after we had zip tied him and everything. And I'm just talking to guys and we're, you know, doing a wrap up and we're doing, uh, you know, 
after uh, after action briefs on the ship, and we're just talking. And then finally, someone said, "Hey, Ramsey, you're really messed up." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And I looked at a reflective surface. I said, "Oh, that's why I'm hurting." Like my nose was like <laughs> over here, and I didn't even realize. So I mean, uh, the doc just you know put something in. He kind of moved it around and put something in, but it wasn't uh, for another seven months. And I was uh, back in the states where you know I went to Balboa Hospital, and then the first time they did it, eh, it wasn't so good. I was still having problems breathing, and then the second time, still wasn't right. And then I, I was like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm really okay. We'll just leave it. <laughs> yeah that's funny the, the sucker punch right to the face uh, I, who knew that there could be somebody in such a small compartment like you just you was never a small person <laughs> yeah it was obviously a very uh very small person uh so yeah he got me pretty good that's cool um so i mean a lot of people join the navy because they they want to see the world mm-hmm. um what were some of your favorite places that you got to just see uh dubai Ooh, cool. And Bahrain. See, uh, this is going to sound strange to a lot of Navy people. I was never on a ship. I was what was considered Brown Navy. So uh, being attached to SEAL teams, generally you're what's called Brown Navy. So you're on the ground all the time and you're doing different things, whatever they are. But I was never actually on a ship. So I wasn't one of those guys that got to see Italy uh, Germany and like so many people that I knew that were seeing it. No, mine was constantly in the sandbox, oh, sandbox, Africa, sandbox, Africa. That's where I was going. That's crazy. So were you in, um, when nine 11 happened or had you gotten out by then? Oh no, I was actually, um, I actually, I just got in right after nine 11. Oh, you, yeah. so you reenlisted, came back. No, no. I joined, I joined after, Oh, gotcha. after nine 11. Okay. And see, I was, when 9-11 happened, that's when I really turned up uh, the heat as far as applying for federal law enforcement. Because I said, you know what? I want to do more to help my country. I want to do more to serve. I want to really add something. So I was applying all over the place. I mean, railroad police, Amtrak, you name it. I was all over the place. Even the Postal Service, their federal law enforcement, I applied there. And, you know, you get put on waiting list. Um. I even applied uh, over in Las Vegas for uh, uh, Metro out there. I mean, I was doing, applying everywhere that you could possibly imagine until finally, you know, the when the recruiter said, hey, listen, this is a good route for you to get into. And the rest was history. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Um, what would you suggest to uh, someone kind of young in their, their military career, kind of as some advice from where you wanted to be mm-hmm. with your job and kind of how that path got started for you. Cause it wasn't automatically like, Oh, you want to do this job? Here you go. Right. Right. There's a lot. So I think when you sit down, my advice to young people or even people who are a little bit older, like me coming out of college, that what you want to do is you want to chart your career. So I think that's number one. You decide where you want to go. And when you sit down with the recruiter, have a plan on where you want to go. That's number one. Number two, if you have a spouse, a significant other, you make sure you talk it out with them because it's not just you. It's also them because you're leaving them behind. So you want to make sure that you have that right. Because I've seen so many soldiers, airmen, 
um, shipmates that they're struggling when they're overseas because things aren't right at home. And, you know, they get those Dear John letters, you know, they're going into debt. I mean, all of that stuff is not right. And see, I made sure that my home life was right. I made sure that I talked it out um, with my significant other. And then it was, okay, you know what? We're going, we're going to do this because I mean, I mean, at one point I was, I was gone for a year. Wow. Yeah. I was overseas for an entire year and I lived over there. So not on base, but actually living there doing things. So it's like, you have to think about that. So you're being away from everything that you love, the person that you love, the people that you love, what you know. So you have to, uh, you know, prepare yourself for that. And I would tell young, uh, uh, young people, at times it's going to be hard. You know, the training is going to be hard. I have to tell you that some of the training that I went through, it was very difficult. I probably trained more than I was like just day-to-day stuff in the military, like day-to-day operations. I was probably more in training. I was more in training in my military career than I was actually just having like day-to-day operations, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, these are things that uh, you should prepare yourself for, you know, and be mindful of that. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good advice. I mean, I think, you know, the general public probably doesn't think about this, you know, as they're thinking about the military and stuff, but you know, you've got, you got the family back home with, you know, wife and kids and, mm-hmm. you know, there's the home, there's the finances, there's school, there's kids, friends and sports. And, yes. you know, there's, there's a lot left to, to one parent to deal with. And it's, it's not an easy thing. To, I mean, it's not easy with two parents present right. all the time. Right. And then you, you set that all on one person's shoulders and, and that's a lot. Yes. And you have to be honest on why you want to do it. And so certainly when I was living in Portland, uh, you know, I I went around to a few schools and I would talk to uh, people about, you know, careers and even talk to them about, you know, military, talk to them about law enforcement. And then when I would have one on one conversations with young people, I would ask them, why do you want to get into it? And, you know, of course, the first thing is, wow, you know, I want to have guns. And, you know, it's really cool and that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, you know what? One, it's not really like that. And two, you know, you have to really think about the possibility of taking a life and how important that is and how that can impact you in ways that you can't even possibly imagine. And I'll tell you, I've talked some people out of joining the military because their thought was, well, you know, it's going to be like Rambo or it's going to be like whatever else they see on television. And I said, you know, it's really not that way. And I talked to them about fear and living with fear. And fear was something, and you don't hear many people say this, but fear is something that I had to learn to be comfortable with because I was scared nearly every day. And I would wake up scared and I would go to bed. When I did sleep, I would go to bed scared. And after a while, you learn to manage it and you incorporate it and it becomes part of your life. Hey, thanks so much for checking out this compilation episode. We would love to get your feedback. Please share and like this video. For any questions, you can reach out to me at valoanguy.us.